0: What I want to do this morning is we're going to transition for a couple weeks into this question that really deals with what does it look like to be the church together in this season, but this morning what I want to tackle is the the power of God and how do we reconcile that with suffering in our world. I'm not claiming to, to in any sense be the authority on this, but what happened to me is I recently, by recently I mean this last spring, bumped into some theological thought around this issue that I think I've heard before, but it never landed before that for me is proving really, really helpful in this season. And uh, to whatever degree you're engaged with what we're gonna talk about this morning, I think we're gonna get a lot of it because it's just where I'm living right now in the text because I'm so bad at it. But really what we want to do is ask this question, you can go to that slide, Jack, is if God is in charge, why doesn't he solve the problem? And of course, this is an age-old question. This isn't new for me or for you or for us or even for COVID. Uh, this, This is the question in many regards. But just to get a little background, what gets us here is months ago, I spent a good portion of the spring studying in an early summer studying N.T. Wright's book called God in Public. And it's, it's one of the more readable books I've ever read by him, though it's still pretty tricky. But, but I was reading it because we're coming up on October, you might have known that there's an election coming. And we have this value around here to make sure that this is the kind of place that's safe for people on both sides of the political aisle. And at the same time, we we have this value that no matter what side of that aisle you're on, that we should be challenging one another to to lead uh, more effectively and and to be healthier. And so I was doing this research from that book because I was trying to get provoked uh, around politics as we think about the fall in that series. And for me, what was driving it was this sense of, uh, like my... Part of my p- political ambivalence, which I think is valuable to what I do for a living, I'm realizing part of that is just a part of my family of origin, and I'm grateful for that. But one of the questions that I have started to ask is, t- to what degree am I giving myself a permission, maybe even that God wants to begin to challenge? And again, not that I would bring a political platform to here, but just in my own life, that I would give this a little bit more thought and a little more conviction. And that book was tremendously helpful, got in public. Well, in there, he actually addresses this question. Uh, this idea of is if God's in charge, why doesn't He do something about it? And I, I thought that I was going to take one week in that series. We're going to call the series "The Truth Is in the Tension," and uh, I thought we were going to take a that this whole idea and make it a week of that series. Well, then, probably four or five weeks ago, we talked a couple weeks ago how you have those, and maybe you can relate just those highs and lows as it relates to COVID, like. For five days, you're fine. And then there's this day where it's just like chicken little and the sky is falling and your thumb is firmly in your mouth and it just feels like the end of the world. It, we, we talked about that as it relates to anger. And I was in one of those days. It was a Friday afternoon. I was coming home from a, a lunch walk with somebody and I just was, it was just, again, I was just suddenly feeling the weight of COVID. And I remembered years ago, I went to this psychotherapy conference thingamajig with Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And one of the real takeaways for me was Uh, Henry Cloud, I think it was him, I get the two mixed up a little bit, but he talked about anytime you're stuck in life, one of the real healthy things to do is to ask yourself if you're an open or a closed system. And what he means by open system is that you're you're taking in new ideas, new relationships, new people, you know, if you've been trying to, to do something for 10 years and still haven't done it, he would say then you lack the information or the relationships to get it done, so take in something new. And not only does an open system take in new things, but by the function of its being healthy, it also constantly has an outlet where it's, it's giving of itself. And the word picture, or the picture that he creates that I love, is just that of a mountain lake. That the reason you want to hike to one, recreate in one, drink from one, take pictures in front of one, is because by its very definition, it has an inlet and it has an outlet. It's constantly taking in new water and it's constantly passing some of what it has down the stream. And he would compare that to a closed system, which of course is trying to solve all the same problems with the same ideas that you've had since high school, or, or whatever, but his point is that's a swamp. Like By definition, that's what a swamp is. It, it takes in resources, maybe in the spring runoff, maybe because of a rainstorm, but then it just holds it. And the reason it becomes brackish and, and nasty and full of leeches and all kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily want to participate in is because it's, it's, it's not taking anything new and it's not giving of itself to anything. And so as I was walking home, I was thinking about that, and I suddenly remembered that N.T. Wright had written this book called God in the Pandemic, and I had cynically been avoiding it because I assumed that it was more the work of editors than it was anything fresh or new. I mean, I'm no dummy. You could just give someone permission to go pluck from what you've done in the past and put together something very relevant, but... I'd more recently heard him in podcasts, I think he has this podcast called Ask NTV Anything, and it's really worth listening to, and he alluded to the idea that this was actually fresh writing. It's about 70 pages long. I picked it up immediately when I got to the office, thanks to Kindle, and, and it's really good. I highly recommend it. If you're looking for some new resources and thought around this, I do recommend it. I'm not going to do justice to the entirety of the book, but again, he picks up this question in there. If God's in charge, why doesn't he do something about it? And then when I walked away from last week and this whole idea of what does it mean to be the church together, I just thought, man, I think it it has to start here. I think we've got to begin to to reconcile how is God in charge in the world today? And what he points out and and other historians will point out is for, for, for the better part of the last 250 or 300 years at minimum, We've been told that there's really two potential answers to the question, especially as it relates to the Western enlightenment and the advent of the age of science and all those things. We really have two options. Option one is this idea that that God keeps in his distance and does not intervene within the world. Now, now he would point out that that's Epicureanism and Epicurus was a philosopher pre-Jesus who kind of showed up in this what you might even call superstitious religious world of, of ancient Rome and, and Greece and said, wait a minute, you guys are doing all these things to appease the gods, but here's the good news. The gods aren't even near here. If To the degree that they exist, they're a long ways off, so go live your lives. But what he points out is that what happened, especially in Western Europe in the Enlightenment, was this uh, reconciling with the idea that to whatever degree God exists, he doesn't determine storms and floods. He's, he or she is a long ways off. Now, added to that is there's an actual historical event that some would argue is, was the proverbial last straw. It has a place. It was in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, the date was 17, November 1st, 1755. And if you're familiar with N.T. Wright's writings, you'll know that this is at the very core of the way he sees the world because what he argues is what happened in Lisbon, it was a Saturday, it was All Saints Day or the Feast of All Saints, a very important day in the Catholic uh, tradition. It's a day where in this era, families would wake up in the morning and light a real candle and put it on the front window, the inside of the front window of their house. What happened at 9.40 a.m. in Lisbon, this community of 200,000 people on the coast of Portugal, a very Catholic community that was right in the middle of the revolution and the enlightenment and trying to figure out where does God exist in the world. What happened in the midst of this day as people were celebrating God was a massive earthquake hit the heart of downtown. It was actually what gave birth to modern earthquake science. I don't know to what degree we know the the, the size or the magnitude of the earthquake. What we do know is that of the 200,000 people, as many as 40,000 died. They say the fissure that ran through downtown was 16 feet wide. The result was the water rushed off the coast Of course, we would again scientifically go like, okay, I think we know what's going on here. It attracted a crowd for people to see the spectacle of all these ships that were now on dry ground and they could see land farther than they ever had before. What they didn't anticipate was the tsunami wave that was about to occur because of the earthquake. There was also, of course, a lot of force that occurred. The result was a lot of candles hitting the grounds of wooden floors and and things like that. They say the fire in the city became so large that people were asphyxiated 100 feet from the fire's edge. Here's actually, 80, I think they say 80% of the buildings in Lisbon were destroyed. The modern secular state, for better and for worse, is a direct result of, of this. A people already reeling in their faith, a people already not entirely able to take the old answers about God and his control in the world and make them work in their world, and the world of science, concluded that at best, God is outside of creation and doesn't get involved. And many well-intentioned Christians ever since have fought for this purportedly, this alternative that's often said to be uh, the best alternative and it sound, that one sounds something like this. That God does sometimes go to that next slide, that God does sometimes reach into the world from the outside and do things that we call intervention. And yet to whatever degree you've signed off on this one, you, you know the struggle of it. If God prevented that cancer and healed it, then why not that cancer? If God prevented that auto accident that saved that life? Why didn't he prevent this auto accident that saved that life? And while we're at it, why wouldn't a God who could stop the Holocaust or in our own times, COVID? But this is the piece where quite frankly, I was very, very grateful for N.T. Wright. And and here's here's my best attempt to summarize what he's suggesting is the the Jesus-centered cruciform alternative. And it sounds something like this. What if God's way of being in charge is consistent with God's way of getting in charge? Now, how this reconciles to things like the military and others is, I think, part of what where dialogue has to happen. But the central claim is, what if God leads consistent with who Jesus was? And I would argue, what if what the Bible does is it's working out how God does power to the extent that how God does power culminates in the Christ. A God who shows up and doesn't claim to be a victim of power, but claims to do power differently. Remember, Jesus, after his resurrection, says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Like he's, he's very much, you can go to that slide, Jack, he's very much saying, to whatever degree the resurrection happened and in and, and historic Christianity is reliable, that the central claim is that God became king that day. That God conquered death, conquered evil, conquered sin, that there's this already-not-yet component to what God accomplished in the world. But again, the question becomes, not, not yet, hold on. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, you can go to that next slide. The, the question becomes, so, so what if God is, is in charge in the same way he gets in charge? Think of, think of this decisive moment, and this is the one that I just keep revisiting in my own guts. Think of Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor who was in charge in this part of the Roman colony. And what we know is that his main job was to prevent riots. And I remember I used to read that and go like, how hard could it be? Suddenly we have this new appreciation for it. Turns out it can be pretty difficult. His job is to keep the peace, especially because Egypt, the the Roman food supply, passes through Israel from, from Egypt. And the Jews, they want Jesus killed and they bring Jesus to Pilate, who has the authority to do that. And you may recall the interaction. Pilate asked him his name. Jesus kind of goes silent. And then Pilate says this. "Uh, Do you refuse? Pilate therefore said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you know that I have the power to release you and power to crucify you? What some would call right-handed power. I've got the power. And Jesus' answer is this. Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. See, the way the gospel story sets itself up, the way the Jesus story sets itself up, I think, this is what you get to choose: is what if what's going on here is, is two types of power? Like epic Lord of the Rings, epic battle kind of style. Two massive powers are squaring off. Only one person's gonna leave still in power, only one idea is gonna leave still in power, and yet Jesus is more or less going, listen, I, I don't I don't do power the way you do. There's the power that comes in the form of big weapons and big might what we call right-handed power but Jesus is operating under a completely different kind of assumption to the degree that Jesus was a historical figure we see that the way Jesus did power was through service through kindness what what if what if the way Jesus did power is the way he still does power Remember there's this decisive moment in the, in the Gospels not long before this where they figure out Jesus is about to be made king and they decide they want to be on his right and his left. Why wouldn't you? And the other disciples, they get all kind of hot and bothered because these guys are positioning behind their back and Jesus pulls them aside. And in a verse that's probably well, very familiar but so difficult to work out in real life, Jesus says this, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their, as their rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. The world has its way of doing power. But it's not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This probably should have occurred to me 20 years ago. But just yesterday as I was working through Isaiah, I had this realization of God's not asking us to do something that God, God's self doesn't already do. It's not, I'm looking for servants. It's, I'm a servant looking for servants. What, what if the way God does power is consistent with who Jesus was? That would lead to a couple observations, and of course there's bigger conversations, and we'd love to have them with you, but here, here's, here's, I think, two immediate things that matter. First of all, it would beg to differ on any suggestion that says God is outside, What if God operates from within the world to put it to rights? Jesus was not an alien, nor was he some wizard from outside of the cosmos. He was human. And to whatever extent he was here to put the world back to rights, he did it from the inside. Not with massive institutions even, just with a handful of relationships. And this brings to mind the God who consistently suffers, we struggle in the West, we, we, we need a Greek God who has no feeling, but the God of the Bible consistently feels, and sometimes theologians kind of pass it off and go like, oh, that's anthropomorphism, that's this thing that he doesn't actually do, but it's how he's helping you understand God. What if it's not? What, 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 if, what if Jesus crying at the tomb of Lazarus wasn't a charade? What if Jesus sweating blood before he went to the cross? What, wasn't him just playing some part in some pre-scripted thing? What if the God of Genesis 6 who creates things and then kind of puts the, puts the kids in charge and then he leaves for the weekend and they throw a rager and he comes home and he's like, this is not good. Genesis 6. The God, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was suddenly evil continually. Watch this. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Notice there's no like, but he, he's going to use it for good. Like, That's not the refrain, it's this God is shocked, this God is grieved, this God is surprised, this God hurts, this God suffers. Asian theologians, because of the long history of Christian missionary suffering in places like Japan, they have this deep theology of a God who actually can suffer and suffers with. We struggle. In the second century BC, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek for the first time. Thanks to Alexander the Great, Greek had become the dominant language. And in the the Septuagint, Genesis 6.6 is translated, God thought it over. Why? Because we struggle with a God who does power through suffering. What if Jesus wasn't a new idea? He was the culmination of really the main idea a god who comes along and serves and remember when jesus actually says when he claims authority he's not just claiming authority but he's claiming authority and he's claiming to go about it in a certain way see if if the one point would be this this god is in creation i think the other thing to think about is what if this god insists upon working through humans Like a God who consistently, go ahead to that next slide, a God who consistently is empowering people to a fault, a God who has given a great deal of the governing of his world over to people. Remember what he said to the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then I think we skip this one as it relates to things like COVID because we think this only refers to catechism. But listen to this, go therefore... Why do you go? Because God's king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. A God whose plan perhaps is clear to rule the world through service, but also to rule the world through people. See, here's why I think this matters. Victimization is rampant right now. Nobody needs me to tell you that. There's lots of things to blame. But what if the answer to the question, if God's in charge, why doesn't he solve the problem, starts with looking in the mirror and going, he has. You have his breath in you. You're looking in the mirror. You have the capacity to do something. What what if God is doing something? And in the the bias for the negative, we miss. We miss that Yale and their team of brilliant thinkers just developed, along with the NBA Players Association, a a asymptomatic COVID test that uses saliva that they can process 30 samples an hour. And then when they were done, they open sourced it, giving it away. We miss the, the, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands of engineers and scientists who were trying to do 20 decades worth of research in what, four or five months? We missed, I just was reading this morning, I thought this was fascinating, I've been begging for things like this to happen in my head. Germany, yesterday, they just hosted a 1500 person concert, concert, put tracers on them and did all these things because they're trying to understand how does this thing actually pass when we get people together like this? Let's stop speculating, let's do the work of it. They hope to have research out by Christmas. What if the answer to the question is the teacher who's gonna brave the doors and go to school tomorrow or the one who's not and is gonna teach online? See, I think this is the epitome of, it's not important that we agree on the solution, but it is perhaps important that we agree on what the problem is. The problem is God's solution is people. The opportunity is God does things through service. How that moves forward, see, we we like flashbang big stuff. To whatever degree Jesus was the savior of the world, He built nothing, wrote nothing, but had a lot of meals with otherwise meaningless people. You're not here because of the book he wrote or the temple he constructed, but the, I don't know, 20 people that he spent extensive time with. It's crazy, it's absurd to think the catalytic effect of that little tiny mustard seed that became this big thing. What if God is in charge He's in charge because there's 8 billion people on the planet, and God has constructed a world in such a way that those people and how they choose to engage power and how they believe in service determines the direction of everything. So here's my question. What, what's God doing through you? This is, I think, the question we have to ask as a church. What does it look like? Not, not, not internationally, not nationally. I don't have the capacity to answer any of those questions. What does it look like for us in Helena, Montana in September of 2020 to be the church together? How does that look? I've talked to some of the people who work with our high school students who are like going to gather them up and they're going to do some school together on Tuesdays. How does that look for you as the neighborhood stay-at-home mom or dad? What does this look like for you as the medical professional? And One of the things N.T. Wright says is that at the very least we ought to start with the Lord's Prayer. I've, I can say I've been praying this daily for you know, the better part of a month, and it does change things. Our Father in heaven, a God who's here, not there, here, hallowed be your name. God, may my life be about you looking good. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. A God who is unapologetically married God's self to his kingdom happening through people. See, I think part of what's getting tore down by COVID is the cult of the celebrity. We want to do things that gets us famous and on podcasts, not the anonymous little things like sanitizing a counter in a hospital somewhere. Give us our this day our daily bread. God, if I can just remember that you're faithful, then I can remember to go be a servant to the world. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, this is a politicized, religiously difficult or excuse me, relationally difficult system. Help me be a forgiving person and to lean into that being true of you. Lead us not into temptation, why? Because I'm weak and I can't handle very much. What does it look like to just decisively go, no, God is in charge, but his in-chargeness looks like the Christ. I'd like to pray, Hannah and Gail come up here. God. You know, Lord, to to the extent that this is true, it's just got got a lot to be worked out. In some ways, it's as easy as applying in the next five minutes, and in other ways, it's got the potential to deconstruct major parts of our values and systems. Would you give us the wisdom uh, to discern what's from you and the courage to do it? Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.